Blog Talk Radio. Hey, Turnbuckle Turmoil fans, welcome to the show one more Sunday. Sangai with you. I'm doing a very rare solo interview today because all of our co-hosts have things going on today. But I'm definitely excited for today. Real quick, before we jump into it, if you're looking for some wrestling in Fargo, North Dakota today, you can find Below Zero Wrestling. So if you're in that area, go support them. Also, the convention in Indianapolis is still ongoing, so we can make it over to the Circle City Convention. Lots of great stars are over there getting some autographs and pictures and so forth. So get out, support your local independents, and support these conventions as they are just starting to get back underway. So without any further ado, I have been very, very excited to have this gentleman on the show for quite a while. We finally tracked him down, found him, and got him booked right away. Disco Jack Frisco from San Francisco, thank you so much for being here with us on Turnbuckle Turmoil today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, since it is your first time with us, I will start things with our traditional first-timer question. What led to you getting into the business of pro wrestling? Oh, um, I was a fan since 1985, and I still am today. Um, although, you know, only certain parts of the business uh, anymore today, it seems like. Um, however... Back um, around, it was, I believe, 1998, I was uh, at a show and met a promoter from out of town um, and started talking with him, and just one thing led to another, and that's uh, essentially how I ended up getting into independent work. Um, Getting into the business yourself, uh, did you have a background in anything that prepared you for, like athletics or drama or uh, any type of other sport, where was wrestling kind of a brand-new experience? Um, I mean, I had uh, an athletics background, you know, my entire uh, upbringing. Uh, I was involved uh, at some level of collegiate athletics as well, so um, you know, there was uh, athletics prevalent uh, throughout my entire life to that point. Um, and then, of course, just the love for wrestling um, is, you know, what led me to get involved. Alan, uh, your own wrestling career, I saw you primarily for Hoosier Pro Wrestling, but you wrestled in several other promotions as well around the central Indiana area. And Indiana wrestling in that time uh, was pretty hot. Uh, There were a lot of promotions. A lot of them were drawing very well. Obviously, you were a fan of wrestling and had gone to shows. But when 
you started actually uh, working in the business and seeing things from the other side of the curtain, what did you think of the health of independent wrestling as a performer in that era? Um, I mean, honestly, I don't think it was very healthy at all. Um, you know, there wasn't uh, a lot of direction. There wasn't a lot of professionalism. Um, you know, there just wasn't, uh, I guess, it just seemed like somebody had a ring um, and somebody had an, enough connections or whatever to have a building, uh, know some people, and just get a show off the ground. But most of the time, that's literally what it was, was just getting a show off the ground. Independent level, that is often very, very true. Right. Now, of course, as fans of yours would know, you are Disco Jack Frisco from San Francisco. You wrestled in Indiana. Had you ever gone to or competed in San Francisco at any point? No, no. Everything um, that I had done was, um, you know, Midwest Indies, uh, primarily around Indiana. Now, just show to show that you were doing, did you get a lot of fans that would come up and ask you questions about San Francisco, just presuming from the introduction they always gave you that that's where you lived? Um, no, you know, as a heel, we weren't really that accessible to the fans. Um, you know, every once in a while or, you know, exiting a show or something like that, somebody would you know, approach you. But, um, you know, in general, we just kind of stayed away um, during intermission time and things like that, just based out of, uh, you know, being a heel instead of a baby. Um, so really no one ever asked me about that aspect of the, the gimmick. I'll kind of, in a connected question, uh, you often were aligned with and even usually tag-teaming with Luscious Lonnie Lee in a lot of cases. He was a proud Canadian as far as the fans knew, and a lot of times Canadians are not well thought of in central Indiana. Did you ever uh, kind of get afraid of the type of uh, anger coming from the fans towards Lonnie Lee being Canadian? Um, not really towards him being Canadian. Um, more so towards, um, you know, him running his mouth and um, just saying whatever he wanted to say and myself being uh, similar and both of us being jerks in general. Um, you know, we did get quite a bit of heat any time that we were um, together, uh, tacked a few times, um, you know, that type of thing. We had fans uh, in cars chasing us away from uh, a building once <laughs> uh, from a show in Marion. So, um, you know, it seemed like he would follow us pretty easily. But, you know, that was a lot of fun in most situations. Al, I understand that at one time, you wrestled at the very unusual location of a junkyard. Can you tell us <laughs> what brought you to a junkyard for a wrestling show? Um, I wasn't the promoter of that show. Um, you know, that was uh, 
uh, the promoter of the uh, EWF out of Marion. Um, I believe that was in Eaton, Indiana, was the small city for that one. Um, I had you know, no idea that's where we were booked. I just had an address to go to, of course, and uh, showed up, and there we were. So, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, when I say sometimes it was just getting a show off the ground, um, you know, that was the type of stuff that you ran into when uh, you were dealing with independent wrestling. I mean, you might be in a building that, you know, could just barely fit the ring and uh, a few rows of chairs in it, uh, all the way up through, you know, a, a nice complex uh, with bleachers and everything that could house a few thousand people. So it just really depended, um, you know, on if the show was, uh, well, I guess how seriously the show, you know, was treated and promoted. Um, you know, if it was a bot show, usually that's where you end up in your better venues. But yeah, you know, the junkyard was um, a pretty wild experience. I had a couple matches there that day uh, at the junkyard, uh, one being a battle royal and then the other being a singles match. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, you, you sit there um, getting ready and, you know, <laughs> you're just changing amidst uh, a path of uh, junk and, uh, it's just one of those uh, independent experiences that you you have. For the battle royal, did the promoter play the theme song of Sanford and Son as you went to the ring? Um, no, I don't believe so. <laughs> That's no, a missed the opportunity royal, uh, right there. <laughs> no, I think um, you know, and actually, I have that on tape somewhere, or part of it anyway, and. Um, I don't think anybody had music during that battle royal. Nah, if we could go back in time, I would <laughs> slip a couple bucks to somebody to get that Sanford and Son music playing. I would have been appropriate. Alan, your career, uh, being from central Indiana, especially in that time, you came across a lot of the old Memphis Territory wrestlers, uh, they were just very prevalent because Memphis wasn't extremely far away, and a lot of them wrestled regularly in Louisville, so they had the name recognition with the fans. Uh, Memphis was seen on TV in parts of Indiana. I know you uh, were on a lot of shows with a lot of the Memphis guys. Uh, were you a big fan of that territory and that style of wrestling? Um, you know, they really didn't have TV penetration where I grew up. So, you know, most everything that I had seen from a Memphis uh, perspective was from tapes type of thing. We're, we're seeing a lot of it, you know, later on on the Internet, um, you know, in that type of uh, format. So, no, I can't say that I was really influenced by that at all. Um, and, yeah, I did share locker room with some of those guys, you know, um, Moondog Spot, uh, Doug Gilbert, Tommy Rich, um, even Coco Beware, you know, all from that uh, vicinity anyway. And, um, you know, it was it was nice to share a locker room with uh, some of these guys that have been around the block and been a part of, you know, the territory system for sure. My co-host QT sent in a question to ask, and he was wondering if the bone that Moondog Spot always carried to the ring happened to be somebody's hip bone that they had removed due to injury? I have no idea. I saw the bone. 
<laughs> but uh, uh, I don't know where he got it from. Um, I do remember meeting him for the first time, which was uh, pretty surreal because uh, growing up, my very first live event that I ever went to, uh, Moondog Spot, was uh, in um, the opening set of matches anyway. Um, and so, you know, here working the show, this was uh, Vernon, Indiana, where I met him. And um, they had driven up. Uh, there's a documentary, you know, that uh, is on Big Daddy LaFonsi. I don't know if you've seen that or not. I forget if it's on Prime or Netflix or something like that. But um, I saw it somewhere, and he's on there. And um, it was him driving up uh, with Moondog Spot and uh, one of the guys that uh, they were training um, at the time. And um, I remember just walking into their um, – you know, whatever it's called, camper, uh, that they had driven up, and he's just sitting right there. And, um, you know, it was just a pretty surreal moment, uh, you know, full circle, going to my very first show, you know, as a kid with Moondog Spot on it to, you know, working a show and uh, meeting him, you know, in that fashion. So, yeah, it was a good time. You also mentioned Coco Beware. Um my memory seems to indicate you actually were on uh, one or two of the benefit shows that they ran for Coco Beware after he had the house fire where he lost everything, including his famous mall call, Frankie. Uh, am I correct that you were on the benefit shows? I remember them being talked about. I don't specifically remember if I was on a show that was a benefit for him or not. Um, I do remember him being at one of the shows, um, you know, that uh, I believe Lonnie uh, booked him for one of those shows in Vernon as well. Um, but I don't remember if I was on one that was a specific benefit for him or not. Okay. Now, uh, obviously, Coco was uh, down on his luck at the time, of course, losing everything in the fire. Um, you were around in that general time frame do you know if the benefit shows were well received because i know in independent wrestling every other show sometimes happens to be a benefit show that i think it burns the fans out on trying to support things like that do you know if the coco beware ones were relatively successful um i really didn't hear um you know, one thing that um, independent wrestling at the time really struggled with was any type of uh, strong attendance or consistent attendance. Um, you know, so I don't know how successful those shows really would have been, to be honest. Okay. Now, we were talking earlier about uh, some of the fans that would get riled up at you and Lonnie and – uh, you wouldn't necessarily hang out at intermission with the fans. But on the flip side of that, do you have a moment with a fan that stands out as being your favorite moment uh, when you did interact with the fan? Um, it's a good question. Um, I don't necessarily have one that just pops in right off the top of my head. Um yeah, I do remember uh, once, I guess, being at a show, um, you know, for one promotion, and I was walking after the show with my bag and my gear and everything uh, to the car, and um, a fan and his son had recognized me and came up to talk to me. Um, 
and were just nice as could be. And they were actually um, talking to me and asking me questions based on a show that I was at with a different promotion. So I just thought that was kind of nice that you know, they had noticed me, um, you know, from a different promotion. And to be honest, I, I, um, you know, was uh, wrestling that night under a mask, so you know they didn't even know that I was there, you know, in the form of the persona that uh, they had uh, seen me before at the other show. So um, you know, that's one of the things about being an independent guy is you you know, have a mask or something just in case you can get uh, in and work a couple times or, um, you know, fill in a spot. So uh, that's what I ended up doing that night. And, you know, those fans uh, recognized me from a different show and um, wanted to talk about that. So, you know, that was, that was nice. Definitely in Indiana, uh, especially around that time, you had fans that would travel the circuit, so to speak, and they would hit a lot of different shows. So that's, not surprising they would recognize you in different places. Now, in the era that you were active for your career, it was a very different landscape as far as women's wrestling goes. This was still the time when you would have pretty much only one women's match on a show if you had that. Most of the time, women were used as valets and managers exclusively. Uh, not every promotion would book a women's match. It's a completely different ball game now than it was. You have entire promotions that are all female. Uh, you have multiple women's matches on standard independent shows. Were you a fan at the time that you were wrestling of women's wrestling and as your opinion of it changed one way or another since that time? Um, well, I think if you look at that time versus now, you know, it's a completely different ball game. Um, you know, the women today, um, you know, absolutely fantastic. Like you said, there's uh, entire promotions uh, like Shimmer or Stardom that are, you know, um, exclusive to women and um, do a really good job with, what they do. So, um, you know, it was not like that at all back at that time, or even, you know, right after that time going through the whole diva era and everything where it really still wasn't, um, you know, the level of women's wrestling that you see today. Um, you know, back at the time, you're right. There was hardly any, uh, women's matches on the shows that uh, I was involved in. I remember one, um, I was trying to remember, I think this was, uh, and Muncie at the fairgrounds, there was a women's match. And that one still sticks out of my mind um, just because it was really good. And um, I can't remember who it was that was in there. But um, I just remember thinking, you know, these girls are really good. Everything looks good in the ring. They've got uh, proper gear and everything. Um, you know, it's just a really good presentation. And, I mean, you really just didn't see that um, you know, around uh, these indies anyway in Indiana. Speaking of proper gear, uh, that has also evolved quite a bit uh, since you were active. Um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you saw on an average independent show maybe three or four people that would go out dressed similar to the Hardys or to Raven or somebody that wore uh, cut-off jeans and uh, blue jeans 
work boots, things of that nature, rather than traditional wrestling gear. Uh, you still have that going on today, but it's not as common to see uh, people in just regular street clothes as opposed to some form of professional wrestling gear that uh, fits with what their gimmick is. Did you, when you were active, uh, have an opinion on guys that dressed like that, or did it uh, matter to you one way or another how everyone else was dressing? I mean, you see a lot of that indie look, and, I mean, part of that is because a lot of guys don't have money um, or you know, it's a lot easier now if you want gear. There's a million places that advertise for it. Um, you can get it really easily. So there's really not an excuse not to have it anymore. Back then it was a little bit harder. Um, but still, you know, if you had half of the guys that were dressing like that, then you had half a roster that didn't really mean anything. You know, if you had one guy that dressed like that, that one person would stand out um, for having that type of a look. So, um, you know, there really weren't controls placed on that um, at all where you had the promoter that would say, look, you know, I need guys with uh, uh, good tights and boots and, you know, good look. And if somebody's going to do something a little bit different, you know, we only need one of them. Um, you just didn't have that type of control. And that gets back to some of the professionalism stuff that I talked about earlier. Um, you know, it's just kind of a staple of the, you know, indies, uh, especially during that era. And um, I don't get out to Indies um, really very much anymore today, so I'm not kind of sure how that is or how that translates to, you know, what's going on in the locker rooms today um, in the local Indies. But, um, you know, back then there was uh, definitely a lack of, um, you know, professional attire that could really, you know, help people stand out and make it feel a little more special to the fans. When you would go out, of course, being Disco Jack Frisco from San Francisco, you would have kind of the loud callers and you would have the uh, um, disco look to you. Where did you go to get your own gear made? Because you had gear that fit with what you were trying to be in the ring. Yeah, um yeah, I had a few different outfits. I had um, some things were just handmade um, through people that I know. Um, also, you know, you talk to people that have been around a little bit, uh, and you get uh, names and addresses and stuff and phone numbers of uh, different people that could make boots and that type of thing. So, um, you know, I could have done better um, with my own stuff for sure, but, um, you know, I had patent leather boots uh, that were the real deal, and I had – uh, some other, you know, custom things um, that I had made up um, that nobody else would have had, uh, you know, at the time, um, you know, on the shows that I was working. So, yeah, I was always just trying to do something to add a little bit of that professionalism and, um, you know, just not be wearing stuff that, you know, somebody in the front row would also have in their closet. Oh, like you said earlier, uh Promoters could pretty much put a ring in any place and run a show as long as there were like spots to have fans and a place to have the wrestlers change. They could run almost anywhere. They're a very mobile business. What would you say was 
kind of the coldest place where you wrestled, where it was brutally cold, because I know, especially in the winter, a lot of the dressing rooms are not heated, and sometimes the buildings themselves would not be heated, and it would get a little bit brutal to wrestle in those conditions. What was the coldest place you remember having to wrestle? Well, I'll tell you, um, I never really had to experience that because in like the December, uh, January months, whenever there would be a show, I was booked in a place where the temperature was not an issue, you know. More so, um, we'd run into the issues where you're doing outdoor shows in the summer and that type of thing, and it is just hot as heck, and especially with my outfit, um, you know, it certainly didn't lend well to ventilation. So, um, you know, dealing with hot environments was uh, something I ran into quite a bit. But as far as uh, cold, um, you know, I was uh, in uh, high school gyms or theaters or someplace, uh, community centers, uh, where, you know, that was just not a problem. So, Lucky for me, I didn't have to deal with anything extremely cold. That is lucky. The promotion in Idaho has an annual show outside on New Year's Eve. It gets a little bit chilly (laughs) in the rain. I'll bet it does. (laughs) For sure. Now, of course, having that jacket, it looked warm just on its own uh, without factoring in having to go to the ring wearing that thing when it's 95 degrees and 98% humidity. And I know a lot of those shows in the summer months were like that. Did you ever have an issue wearing the jacket out there? Did you have to skip the jacket when you would go out those? Or did you wear it and hope that you didn't have a heat stroke in it (laughs) no i'd always wear the jacket um you know you need that for the gimmick uh, going to the ring and everything um but you know how many minutes was that just a couple of minutes uh, before that thing was off and um you know it's time to wrestle so um that was never really a problem in in the heat because it wasn't going to be there very long i'm looking back through your career what would you say was the longest match that you actually had? Um, that's a good question, too. I actually never thought of that. So I'm trying to jog my memory right now and think what that might be. Um, probably 20, 25 minutes, uh, something along those lines. Um, probably a tag match uh, with Lonnie or uh, that's – yeah, that's probably the case, I'm sure. Probably a tag match with Lonnie, about 20, 25 minutes tops. For the fans listening that don't truly appreciate what that is, 20 to 25 minutes, even in a tag match, you're going pretty nonstop, and you're often in the heat. Uh, you're active that whole time. And it can take a lot out of you, so 25 minutes is a long time to be in a wrestling match for the fans that have never done anything like that. It is a long time. What did you used to have to do as far as conditioning to make sure that you were ready to do matches that went 15 to 25 minutes? Um. 
I mean, I was involved in athletics, and I was pretty young at the time, so you know, it really wasn't too big of an issue. Um, and it just depended as far as what the match was. You know, if you look at a match, um, you know, with Lonnie and myself, for example, you know, the first five six minutes were probably going to be, um, you know, a lot of stalling and things like that, and riling out the crowd. Um, so it wasn't all, you know, bell to bell, just, um, you know, going nonstop, you know, that's for sure. And, you know, a tag match, uh, going 2025 really isn't uh, too bad at all because you could always have that option to tag out. Um, so it, it really wasn't too bad. Obviously wrestling is populated with a lot of guys that are, uh, very into physical fitness, be it uh, weightlifting or extreme amounts of cardio or bodybuilding or whatever it is that they do to look like pro wrestlers a lot of times. I know uh, any era of wrestling you're going to see guys that are into that and doing kind of unusual things in order to stay in shape, we'll say. What was some of the stranger things that you saw wrestlers doing to maintain the physical conditioning? Um, I mean, working indies, it's not like we were really around each other that much. Um, it was really just showing up to the show and um, finding out what's going on and um, getting everything uh, organized for what we were doing that night. But, um, you know, I never never worked out with anybody else or saw anybody else uh, doing anything um, to try to keep in shape. You know, that was all just stuff that happened, uh, you know, away from the facility. Now, these days I don't know how common it was when you were active, but you see a lot of guys carrying uh, barbells and the elastic bands to kind of loosen up at least. Did you see a lot of that uh, when you were wrestling where guys would bring stuff like that and uh, loosen up before a match, or were they more into just kind of stretching on their own and uh, doing things uh, astromatically? Yeah, I didn't see too many of, you know, those athletic bands, uh, that type of thing, or barbells that anybody bring to the show. Um, you know, you do see the stretching, you know, quite a bit, especially before people go out. You see push-ups, you know, that type of stuff. Um, you know, sometimes people helping people stretch uh, if they have bad backs or whatnot. So it just kind of depends. Um, but uh, that was pretty much it back then. We didn't see too much uh, like you'd see some of the athletic stuff today. When you were uh, wrestling, a lot of people will think to the future when they're still actively wrestling and they want to stay in the business even when they can't do the in-ring, so they start thinking of other roles. Did you ever, for your own personal career, start thinking of other roles that you wanted to try in wrestling, or were you focused mainly on wrestling in the ring the whole time? No, I mean, I just wanted to be involved um, and, you know, just have a presence um, inside the business um, after, you know, being such a, a big fan for so many years. I'm still a fan today, you know, big time. So, um, 
you know, I, uh, when you get involved in indie wrestling, you're, you're just essentially looking for where the needs are. So, I mean, I've done everything from um, being a commissioner of a company at the time to being a referee, um, you know, wrestled in the ring, you know, masked, unmasked, uh, just wherever, you know, there was a spot to fill. And then um, I also promoted some shows as well. So got a little bit of promoter experience under my belt, too. Uh, promoting for those that have never tried it, and I will put myself in that because I have not promoted a show personally. It is one of the more thankless jobs and one of the harder jobs in wrestling to successfully do. There's a lot that goes into promoting a show that a lot of fans never really think about or realize. What were some of the surprises that you encountered when you started promoting your own shows? Um, I don't know that there was a lot of surprises necessarily because uh, at the time that I had promoted, I had been around for a little while anyway. So, you know, I'd seen what the lay of the land was and you know what the problems are that you're going to run into for the most part. So, um, you know, I guess surprises would be, you know, and when you're dealing with indies, you know, there's nobody that's going to be working the show that is, uh, you know, uh, depending on that uh, for a payday or anything. So if people have um, something come up where they can't make it, uh, they just don't make it. Um, sometimes they let you know, sometimes they don't. Uh, we had, um, you know, a couple people get stuck in traffic on a show that was, book there was a really really bad traffic jam coming up from Kentucky so I had a couple guys coming that um, were just stuck and there was no way they could make it on time so uh, you know, just things like that that pop up are probably the biggest surprises um, you know, I remember we had some signage um, that I had rented uh, in the city that I uh, promoted uh, a show and um, you know I guess that signage was um, ended up being moved by uh, people on the property just because it would have required a permit or something at the time. Um, and so, you know, just running into things like that that, um, you know, you don't expect is probably the biggest uh, surprises. Thankfully, nothing, um, you know, really, really bad as far as a surprise. Your career was primarily in Indiana. The surrounding states have commissions, uh, Kentucky and Ohio specifically. Did you ever delve into going to the places that had commissions and have to get licensed and all of that? No, I never had to um, deal with the licensing. Um, the only other state that I um, ventured out to was Michigan, but um, did not uh, have to get licensed um, anywhere. You're luckier than a lot of us then because licensing in a lot of places happens to be kind of strict. So I'm glad you didn't have to mess with that. Now, you mentioned that you still today are a big fan of pro wrestling, and you go back to uh, wrestling in the 80s when you were starting to watch the sport. One of the things that a lot of people that have been longtime fans of wrestling have done is go to the Cauliflower Alley Club conventions. Uh, obviously, we did not have one in 2020, but there is one on the books for later this year in Las Vegas. Is 
CAC something that you have ever done before, or is it something that you have uh, considered doing? I have considered it um, several times. It just always seems like whenever that is booked, I've got something else going on that takes precedence. But it's definitely on my list of things um, that I want to do. And I did um, already look into the one that's coming up for uh, 2021. So I don't know. I might be out there for that. Um, we'll, we'll have to see. But it's definitely something that I will do. One of the things at CAC that is a tradition that they still do to this day is the cribbage tournament. Uh, we don't see cribbage being played in locker rooms anymore, sadly. A lot of the wrestlers that came along, say, in the last 25 years may not even know what cribbage is, but in eras way in the past, Cribbage was a common game that wrestlers would delve into to pass the time before the show started or while they were waiting for their particular match to start. Did you ever happen to learn how to play cribbage at all? No, no, I never played cards. Um, I've been in the locker room and, and watched other people play cards, though, so um, I have seen what you're talking about. But um, no, I never did. I was never a big cards player, you know, of any type, um, you know, outside of wrestling and wrestling at all. So not my thing, but I have seen it. Well, it is definitely not something you see very often anymore. So I'm not surprised that you didn't really get into it. Uh, of a CAC... In addition to being a fan convention, or it's, I don't want to say that so much, it's more of a, a gathering of wrestlers and a fan convention is what it has morphed into uh, from when it started. It was primarily a wrestler's reunion. But in addition to all of that, they also do live matches at the CAC where they bring in talent from around the country and uh, they present sometimes a very long wrestling show. When you go to things like conventions and like the CAC, are you looking sort of at what the current wrestling and the future wrestling is like or are you more focused on what wrestling was when you were enjoying it uh, coming up and maybe uh, closer to the years you were active i mean you're always looking and seeing what is out there and um, you know who looks good like who has uh, promise and that type of thing um i'm not a big fan of a lot of what i see today on north american television anyway um, I'm a big fan of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, to me, that's really the only company that um, is out there doing it right still. Um, you know, everything else, uh, it annoys me as much as, you know, anything when I try to watch one of the shows. So, um, you know, talent's one thing, but, um, you know, the package of presentation that it's put into is uh, is something else. 
Well, we're at the point in the show where we have a game that we like to play. We call it Word Association. I will throw out the names of some people that you likely have come across in your career. And the first word or two that comes to mind is the answer. Are you prepared to do a little word association? I hope so. All right, here we go. (laughs) We'll give it a shot. We'll give it a shot. First name, referee Jason Harding. (laughs) Uh, Good guy. Um, I remember him from uh, HPW, and um, I believe he bounced around and worked some other uh, shows as well. But, yeah, yeah, good guy. Julian Hall. Um, I That one is not uh, ringing a bell with me. Okay, she might have been right after your run there. Luscious Lonnie Lee. <laughs> oh, what a character. Um, you know, very, very good guy. Um, just a wonderful person. Um, I really enjoyed the time that I spent with him. Um, just another good guy. Dice Man Ronnie Vegas. Oh, he was a character as well. Um, I remember him. Um, you know, he he always had a good look, I thought, to him. Austin James. Austin James. Um, I remember him um, just from a few shows, uh, but um, that was it. Uh, never really talked to him much, never really uh, had a chance to work with him, so. Bobo Brazil Jr. Yeah, um, I brought him in to work uh, the first show that I booked, uh, actually against Dice Man. So um, I thought he did a great job, you know, on that show. Um, you know, it was uh, nice having him on the show. Uh, seemed like a pretty decent guy. Deputy Dog. Yeah, I remember him. I had him uh, actually booked him on another show uh, that I ran in the same city. Um, but uh, didn't talk to him very much, just um, seen him on a couple of shows, and that was about it. Final name, Hurricane Jason Maples. Yeah, um, yeah he's the promoter that I was speaking of. Um uh, back at that ECW show in January of '98, and um, so that's you know where I got my start. Um, but um, yeah, that's uh, that's the guy out of Muncie, or I'm sorry, out of Marion. Absolutely, he is still in the general area promoting. He has uh, primarily promoted Fort Wayne for the last several years. Yeah. Uh, Jason Maples has a very unique uh, promotion. He calls it Heroes and Legends, where he brings in names from the past that were big names from television that may or may not be overly active anymore. Uh, He does a convention prior to the event so people can get autographs and pictures and so forth. And then on the actual wrestling event of the night, he will combine those people with the heroes, which are the local independent stars. And usually it is 
one of the legends wrestling against one of the heroes. When you were uh, wrestling, do you think something like what he's doing now would have worked at that time where you had kind of a 50-50 mix of the stars from the past intertwined with the current wrestlers? Or do you think that it was a little bit too soon for something like that? Um, it depends. I mean, do I think it could work? Yeah, I think it absolutely could work because um, a lot of the indies that did well were the ones where there were a couple of guys uh, with TV exposure that would come in and work those shows. And, you know, they would be the ones that draw the crowd. And um, back then, that was really the extent of, um, you know, what independent wrestling was. It really wasn't a convention mindset to it like there is now. Uh, where the convention takes priority over, you know, matches. So um, I definitely think, um, and obviously it all depends on, you know, the building that you're getting and the talent that you're bringing in and the uh, payday associated with that. But, um, you know, now you can bring in vendors and you can charge them and, and all kinds of things. And you've got social media to promote these things. And you've got uh, a much wider base, it seems like, that will travel uh, for independent wrestling than what you had at the time. Um, so, you know, it, not having the social media aspect of it to really get the word out there, um, I think would hurt, um, because I know, you know, they had, um, you know, that convention here in town. There's a lot of people that came from out of town this weekend to go to that uh, convention, um, that they've got here. And, um, you know, I don't know that you would have had that, uh, anywhere near the levels that you needed in order to be financially successful with uh, a large show like that, but, um, I'm not sure. Would have been interesting, but I think you might be right. I think that the social media really helps what they do because if you don't get the word to the proper amount of people, they don't know it and they can't travel, which is a large part of the success of a company like Heroes and Legends where they attract people from out of the area to attend. Right, yeah, and I mean, just even in... Uh, in terms of being a fan, you know, it's a lot different now than what it seems like it was back then. Um, you know, I was traveling to shows. I have been, you know, all of my life. But um, for the most part, uh, when I was traveling to shows back then, it would be shows within the local geographic area. And now if I travel to a show, I mean, just a couple of years ago, I went to Japan for a show. So, uh, well, a series of shows, actually. But, um you know, it's uh, it's a lot different now. Um, it seems like the door, well, not with COVID as much uh, anymore, obviously. But um, in terms of um, getting to big shows or where uh, the important shows are, uh, there is a there is a traveling base of fans um, that are willing to do that. And um, I think that definitely is a change in mindset from where it was before, where um, you know, you might travel a couple hours to a big city where, you know, a show is that you've heard of, but, you know, now people will travel across the country. For sure. It's a different type of wrestling fan we see pretty often these days. Uh, speaking of Japan, in the last five years or so, it has opened up more to independent American wrestling than any time I can remember, a lot of 
independent wrestlers from the United States have gone to Japan to wrestle for promotions of various sizes, from the smallest independents up to some of the more prominent promotions in Japan. It used to be very, very closed off for Americans unless they invited you, and that was not going to happen unless you were a major name. When you were uh, actively wrestling, did you have any goals or any uh, kind of visions of yourself wrestling in Japan at some point? No, no. I mean, that obviously would have been amazing, but no. Um, you know, I didn't have any delusions of grandeur or anything. I knew that this was uh, something that I wanted to do just to get involved on this side of the curtain versus um, you know, just being a fan. I, I've always studied you know, the business, even as a kid growing up. Um, you know, um, I would watch anything and everything and you know, not even necessarily what was going on in the ring, but um, you know, what are the lighting guys doing and, and just whoever is uh, visible. You know, I would just always watch everything and study and try to figure out why everything is happening. So you know, I've always been uh, of that mindset where I'm inquisitive and I want to learn. And so it just gave me an opportunity to learn um, from a different perspective uh, on something that I love. So that's what I was doing. Um, I was uh, in college at the time. And so, you know, that was something that, um, you know, I was pursuing as well was a career after that. And I knew that that was the smart route to go versus, um, you know, the other path with wrestling. So uh, there was no, no big plan. It was just a matter of trying to get in um, and, you know, do something that I enjoy. A lot of international wrestling has become popular within the United States fairly recently. I think part of it is the explosion of the availability on YouTube of different uh, countries wrestling. Uh, maybe social media has helped. But you see a lot of fans gravitate towards British wrestling or Japanese wrestling or sometimes even uh, like what they're doing in Australia. Did you study a lot of the different countries wrestling in order to incorporate some of what they did into what you did as a wrestler or was it something that you just observed as a fan back then? Yeah, I mean, you really weren't able to study that much um, in terms of other countries, you know, and that was just based on the times and the technology that we had. You know, now if I want to watch a show that's happening live in Japan at 4 in the morning here, I can just go sit on my couch and hit a few buttons and I can make that happen. Um, but back then, I mean, you're dealing with tape trading and that type of a thing in order to um, you know, get content that you wanted to see. And um, it, it just, it's a different ball game today than it was back then. So uh, pretty much everything that you're, you're learning and you're doing back then is based on, um, you know, North American and, you know, some stuff out of Canada, um, maybe a little bit of Mexico, but not too much even back then. For your own personal taste, when you were, more of a fan of wrestling before you started, did you enjoy some of the Japanese wrestling and uh, Lucha Libre and that 
type of thing through tape trading, or was it something that, as a fan, you didn't really follow that closely until after you'd gotten in the business? Um, there was a little bit of tape trading, so, um, you know, I did have exposure, but not enough to where you could follow things along, you know, month over month and that type of a thing to really get a great feel for it. Um, it was really just a matter of, um, like, especially with Lucha, you know, you see it and it's, it's a lot different, you know, it's a different structure. It's, um, a different feel to the match, um, you know, they do a lot of uh, six-man tags and that type of thing there as well. The rules are completely different. Uh, they have a captain versus, um, you know, the style that you see here in America. So, um, you know, when you're seeing that stuff, you're just trying to figure out the lay of the land and figure out what's going on and, and try to figure out why certain things work um, or don't work and what the differences are. So um, that's really all that was, you know, back then. You mentioned – earlier that you did have experience with wearing a mask during your wrestling career, that oftentimes will present sort of a different set of variables. Oftentimes wrestlers will try to change up their style of wrestling. They'll try to do things differently to conceal who's under the mask. A lot of times they will even... Uh, walk differently and hold themselves differently when they're in the ring. When you were under a mask, did you go to a lot of lengths to try to change what you were doing as far as the wrestling, or was it something where you were basically the same wrestler but just with the mask on? Oh, no, no, it was completely different. Um, you know, I was very, very careful. The entire outfit was completely different except for my boots, which my boots were just uh, patent leather black boots. There's nothing distinctive on them as far as any you know, type of sewn-on emblem or image or letter or anything um, that would you know, make it recognizable uh, under a different gimmick. So, And then on top of that, you know, the um, outfit that I had would cover you know, a large part of the boots anyway except for the bottom part. So, um, yeah, walk a little bit different being a little bit different based on what the character was and, um, you know, yeah, just completely different, but yeah, you don't want to give the impression that, uh, you were already out there before. When you did wear the mask, did you have fans that actively did guess who you were under there to kind of heckle you with it? Or were you by and large able to get away with, people not knowing it was you under there. Yeah, totally got away with it. Um, you know, it's not, uh, it wasn't too hard. You know, the Frisco Jack Frisco character was, um, you know, one that would not be around with him. Um, you know, I've worked uh, as both a baby and a heel under a mask, just depending on, you know, what was needed for the event in the evening. Um but, uh, yeah, nobody ever guessed. And in some places, you know, it was just exclusively working, you know, under a mask and not uh, as a different character. So, you know, there was nothing for them to compare. It just kind of depended uh, on where we were, you know, for that particular show. But, um, yeah, it was uh, never anything that uh, anybody, you know, ever questioned. Or I, I actually, I had, <laughs> it's kind of funny that you mentioned it, 
there were people that were trying to guess or ask if it was this certain guy or that certain guy, and they were pretty sure that it was, and, you know, I overheard them, and they weren't identifying me as that person. So, you know, that was uh, providing a chuckle here and there, but um, yeah, nobody ever directly approached me and wondered if I was uh, the person under the mask. I mean, you were doing your job well. <laughs> I would hope so. Now, everybody knows that the nature of wrestling is very, very physical, and injuries are always going to be part of the business. It's just something everyone has to deal with at some point in time if they're in for any length of time at all. What were some of the injuries that you had to deal with during your wrestling career? Well, luckily, I didn't have too many, you know. Um, we worked pretty sparsely back then, so it's not like we were going at a hectic pace or anything. Um, but, um, you know, the worst injury that I had uh, happened uh, actually the night that I debuted that um, character, Disco Jack Fisco. Um, uh, I was wrestling a guy named Phoenix, and um, I ended up on the outside, and he jumped off the top and um, landed on my shoulder and that separated my shoulder. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know it that night. I just was very uh, uncomfortable on the way home uh, that evening. But the next day, I definitely felt it and uh, got checked out um, pretty soon after that and found out that I had separated it. So, um, you know, fortunately, um, you know, it wasn't really that bad or that noticeable right at the time. So I was able to finish the march and all of that. But, um, you know, that was the worst injury. Other than that, um, you know, there was one time uh, while in training and just working out with some guys, I uh, ended up uh, hurting my ankle, so I twisted it really bad. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, the separated shoulder was really the, the big one. I separated my shoulder on the same night that I shattered my orbital socket, had a concussion, brain contusion, subdermal hematoma, and multiple skull fractures, and that shoulder separation was the most painful of all of that, so I definitely understand that being the worst injury well I mean, my goodness uh, was that all you know that happened <laughs> uh, I also burst a blood vessel in my eye oh, well there you go okay that makes more sense then um, yeah that, that's quite a lot so that's more than uh, most people would experience over a, a whole career so my goodness I figured get it all done at once there you go. Um, one of the things that a lot of people in wrestling get to do, and it's different from pretty much any other sport, when you get to the professional level, a lot of times you will work with people that will go on to be at the national stage wrestling on TV, and you were with them when they were getting started or uh, when they were on the verge of being signed by a national company. Uh, we mentioned Jason Harding earlier, who is with WWE right now. Uh, you probably were on shows with other people that went on to be on TV. What's it like for you when you're watching television and you see guys that you were wrestling with pop up on the screen? 
Well, I mean, aside from guys that, you know, had already been on television uh, that I was in the ring with, um, you know, the only guy that I can think of that, um, you know, was just at the local level and ended up being on TV later was Jason. So I'm happy for him. Of course, I even reached out to him once uh, many, many years ago. Um, I went to a Ring of Honor show, and he was on that show. So I uh, reached out to him just to let him know, hey, I saw you on the show. You know, great job and everything. Um, but other than that, um, he was the only one. So, um, yeah, pretty cool to uh, to see him make it. Absolutely. Well, we're right at the end of the show today, and I want to give you the chance if there's anything that you would like to say to the listeners in closing. Floor is all yours. Oh, um, yeah, I don't really have anything to promote um, or or get out there, so. I just appreciate everybody taking the time. If you've uh, stuck with us this far and listened, well, thank you very, very much. Uh, it really means a lot. It was a lot of fun working um, for the limited amount of years that I did. And, um, you know, to anybody that I worked with, that I uh, got along with, had a good time with, um, you know, people like uh, Troy Miller or, um, you know, Jesse or his brother who wrestles El Gavilan, Austin Steele, Lonnie, um, you know, Loki. Uh, there's a lot of guys, Dr. Love, even, um, you know, thanks to all those guys who made um, you know, doing this thing a lot of fun, and I really appreciate, uh, you know, the time spent with them. Well, Disco Jack Frisco from San Francisco, it has been a pleasure having you on Turnbuckle Turmoil today. I definitely appreciate you taking the time to do it. Hopefully we'll get to do this again sometime. Always enjoyed watching you when I got the chance uh, during your wrestling career. was a big, big fan. And I want to thank you for all the years of service in wrestling, entertaining all the fans. Well, thank you very much. It was great to be on your show. I really appreciate it. And um, best wishes and best health to everybody. All right, fans. Disco Jack Frisco from San Francisco was a great, great talent. If you happen to stumble across something on the YouTube where he's in it, definitely give it a watch. He was very, very, very entertaining. And we are going to be back with you next week. Next Friday afternoon, we have Bobby Joe Bristow out of the Oklahoma and Texas region. And then one week from this very day, we'll be back with Arthur McArthur, who is also out of the Indiana area and tearing it up on the independent circuit so make sure you join us then everybody stay safe support your local independence and we'll talk to you soon Whoa!